There's a lot of forces, people use the term Molochian forces, at work that want to warp this in all kinds of heinous ways. And we are not naive about this. This can go wrong in a lot of ways. We are trying to say there is a way in which this can go well, but it takes all of us being committed and really challenging these Molochian forces. I look towards the stories and try and create a better story, a story that that can uh, make more sense to people. And no, everything isn't the worst and everything isn't the best. It's going to be, when you open up that door, it's going to be wonderful and awful simultaneously. And managing the wonder and the awe is the project that John and I set out to do. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. My guests, whose voices you've just heard, are John Verbeke and Sean Coyne. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence, a subject about which I'm more intelligent now than I was before I spoke with them, although I'm still very much in the learning stage. But before we get to that, a couple of things. If you are hearing this right now, that means you are not yet a paying subscriber to this podcast. Now, I know we are constantly being asked to subscribe to things, especially lately. There's always a paywall going up when we're reading something. There's always another podcaster or YouTuber or Substacker interrupting the content. Ask if you consider paying for it. I don't like it any more than you do. I especially don't like doing it myself, but this is where we are. I have been doing this podcast for more than three years and releasing just about everything for free. There is, by my estimation, some 400 hours of free content out there. And it's good. I don't release anything if it's not good. Starting this year, free subscribers are able to hear about half of the interview. And that's often a sizable chunk. But you're going to need to become a paying subscriber to hear the whole thing. I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table here. I have got about eight different jobs right now. I've got the Unspeakeasy and everything we're doing there. I've got my other podcast, A Special Place in Hell, which I do with Sarah Hader. I teach writing courses, on and on. But primarily, I am a writer. I love everything I'm doing, most of it anyway. But my purpose here on Earth is to write. And I need to start doing more of it. I need to write more this year and in the years to come. And in order to do that, I'm probably going to have to take something off of my plate. I really do not want that thing to be this podcast. But in order to keep doing it, I'm going to need people to pay for it. It's that simple. So if you want to keep hearing The Unspeakable, please become a supporting listener at megandom.substack.com. You can also just go to Substack and look up The Unspeakable with Megan Dom. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. That's how you spell my name. And you can join for just $7 a month. That is like less than $2 a week. That is less than 24 cents a day. See, I used my calculator to make this announcement. That's how much work I put into this. Okay, end of announcement. My guests are the philosopher and neuroscientist and popular YouTuber, John Verveke, and the editor and publishing entrepreneur, Sean Coyne. These guys do so many different things and often in such unusual ways. 
that those descriptions barely scratch the surface. But for the purposes of this introduction, I can tell you that they have collaborated on a series of short books about artificial intelligence. Technically, this is one book called Mentoring the Machines. It's being released in four parts. The first two are already out. Part three is coming out in March and part four in April. The aim of these books is to offer a clear understanding of the implications of AI and to invite readers to think about our own participation in its development and how our own choices can move that development in a positive or negative direction. As I've mentioned before, I want to cover the subject of AI more on this podcast, and I hope this will be the first of many conversations. Now, if you're into the world of dissident, heterodox thinkers, you may be familiar with John for his lectures on what he calls the meaning crisis. This discussion touches on that a bit, but it's mostly my attempt to distill some pretty complex ideas into something that the average or in the case of this audience, slightly above average person can understand. It's a great conversation, and I hope you'll become a paying subscriber and hear the whole thing. But in the meantime, here is the first half of my interview with John Verbakey and Sean Coyne. John Verbakey and Sean Coyne, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to just lay my cards out on the table. I spent a lot of time thinking about how to approach this interview. I've been wanting to cover the subject of artificial intelligence more here on this podcast. And you guys were recommended to me by a couple of different people. Both of your names uh, were familiar to me. So Sean, we both come from the writing and publishing world. And as an author, and actually moreover, as a teacher of writing, I knew a little bit about StoryGrid which I guess, for lack of a better description, is a framework for thinking about narrative structure. Is that fair? Something like that? Yes, it started as a methodology, and now it's more of a, a theoretical framework. Yeah, I think okay. that's Yeah. Okay. Um, and John, I know you from certain dissident intellectual corners of YouTube. <laughs> you coined the concept of the meaning crisis, and there are a lot of ideas in there that interest me a lot and that I've, I've covered here. So the two of you have teamed up to produce a series of four books about AI and where it's headed. And in reading them, I realized that I understand so little about AI that I don't even know where to start. (laughs) And in fact, I kind of kept putting off this interview because I was like waiting to understand it. So maybe that's actually the place to start. I'm just going to ask you some, some very basic questions, and we'll go from there. And I guess the first one, what are we talking about when we talk about AI? Are we talking about chat GPT, like primarily? What are the things right now that constitute AI? Um, So I'll start first. There's a bunch of different meanings to it. There's a classic distinction in cognitive science that John Searle made between weak and strong AI. Weak AI is when you basically make a device that can do something that human beings used to. We used, we used to need human beings to do. So in that sense, your ATM, which you can go to, is weak AI. Nobody thinks, oh, it's, it's actually understanding anything or uh, has agency or anything like that. The thing is, it's still artificial intelligence because it's solving problems, doing things that only intelligent human beings could previously do. 
Now, strong AI is a different proposal. And then I'll make two divisions within strong AI, and then I'll let Sean say a few things. Strong AI is the proposal. No, what we're actually going to do is we're going to do something very unique. We're actually going to make intelligence. We're not going to simulate it. We're not going to just model it. We're going to create a machine that we can point to and honestly and truthfully say, there's intelligence there. Just like I mean it when I point to you and say, there's intelligence there. I don't think you're a simulation. I don't think you're any of those things. I think you genuinely <laughs> are intelligent. Okay. It depends right? on the day, but yeah. Okay. Okay, fair <laughs> okay. Well, let's say it's a good day. Okay. And so uh, that's the strong AI project. Now within strong AI, there's also one more division. There's what you might call specific AI, which is what we've had for most of the time. This is AI that can do things that might cause us to attribute intelligence to it, but it was suffered from what was called the silo problem. It typically could only solve like one kind of problem, one domain. So like, for example, we have machines that can beat the best people in the world in chess or Go. They have some kind of genuine intelligence, but they don't have what you and I have because while they can beat you at chess, they can't learn Spanish. They can't learn how to swim. They can't figure out how to take an airplane and then a train. They, so you have artificial general intelligence. You can solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. So until very recently, the only strain, strong AI we had was not AGI, artificial general intelligence. Now, that's the holy grail of AI, to come up with strong AGI. And the large language models, which ChatGPT machines are an instance of, there are others, by the way, these are the first machines that can make a stab. Nobody completely claims that they have AGI, but they can at least claim that they've made a breakthrough in solving the AGI problem, namely solving the silo problem and producing machines that can solve problems in a wide variety of domains like you and I. And in that sense, it becomes conceivable as opposed to just imaginable. It becomes conceivable that they could get an AGI as good as you or I or better than you and I or I. And that is how they are unlike all these other machines. So to put it in a sentence, these machines carry the possibility of no longer just being tools, but of becoming agents like you and I are agents. I'll let, I'll let Sean say something now towards answering that question. Well, I obviously I agree with everything that John said. And sort of my role in this partnership is to take in John's very amazing erudition and make it, for lack of a better word, manageable for everyday people like me and you, right? So, <laughs> okay. I don't know if I've uh, gotten there. Okay. You're going to have to uh, oh, I would just still add walk me through it. That John's really well-defined notion of the sort of like the calculator kind of intelligence. Those are, those are machines that can solve very well-defined problems. So in other words, they're sort of algorithmic. You give them a recipe and they'll output with great predictability the answer that you desire. So the machines that we have now are very well-defined machines that can output requests. So calculators and to a certain extent, the, the large language models are doing something like that. The second level of problem. So I, I see that there are sort of three general levels of problems. 
We have the well-defined problems that can be computationally, algorithmically solved very easily. If not very easily, there's a, there's a direct path to a goal. Then you have what are called the ill-defined problems. The ill-defined problems will not be easily solved by algorithms. We don't have an algorithm yet. So the ill-defined problems require what are called heuristics, sort of rules of thumb. So we, as general problem solvers, are, are loaded with these heuristics, and, and we learn them as we are growing up in our, in our cultures and in our families, et cetera. And so it's, it's sort of become the language of common sense. Uh, well, that's obvious. So the heuristics are the tools that are used to, to solve the ill-defined problems, and those require sort of trade-off relationships. And a lot of John's work is about understanding the trade-offs in a very clear way. And, and the last category of problems are what I call the, the undefinables, the ineffables, the ones that we're not capable of getting our arms around. Where did we come from? Who started this whole thing is one of those, I would say. So th that three tiers, uh, those three tiers of problems are what baffle us. And so uh, the project for creating artificial general intelligence in a very simple way is the project to help us solve these problems by creating machines that can think like we do so that we can, you know, enable ourselves to, to be able to solve problems that we've never solved before. Okay. And what I want to get to in this conversation ultimately is how big of a threat this is, how worried we should be about this. And I know, John, you've spoken about how people, you know, you're, I don't want to call you a catastrophist, but you're quite worried about the potential here. And I know you've spoken about how people maybe need to get, get a little more anxious. So I want to sort of just move toward that kind of pursuit of those ideas. But before we get to that, you know, one of the things that you do really beautifully in these books is, you know, tell these origin stories of AI, the, you know, the, the pioneers. I mean, I think this goes back a lot further than most people realize. This isn't something that just emerged in the last 20 years. This goes way, way back. So I don't know which of you wants to start. Like, what's the sort of earliest incarnation of what we now call AI? So the earliest that where we can make we can see somebody making this proposal is in the period of the scientific revolution with Thomas Hobbes, who is in an, an argument via letters with Rene Descartes. And Hobbes is basically taking an idea that Descartes had already proposed, that cognition is computation, the inferential manipulation of propositions that represent the world either truly or falsely. And that's sort of a good quick idea about what we mean by computation. And, but for Descartes, he had thought that, that, that only immaterial substances or souls could do that kind of thing. Although there might be some variation on that, which I don't need to get into. We're not doing a Cartesian exegesis here. Thomas Hobbes said, we have, uh, we've got, the, we've got new, they were just developing the first automatons, self-moving machines. And they had the first sort of you know, calculators, uh, like calculating machines, or they were manually operated and everything. And Hobbes put these two together and said, well, we could have a completely mechanical computer. We could take the ability to manipulate, you know, inferentially manipulate 
propositions according to logical principles, and we could put that ability into a mechanical device. And therefore, we would have, we would have created an artifact that was capable of computation. We would have created artificial intelligence. And so the proposal actually is part of the scientific revolution that also led to things like, you know, electricity, the, uh, you know, nuclear bombs, etc. All of that technology uh, that has its origin in uh, the scientific revolution also has its origin in the, the science. The AI also has its origin in the scientific revolution. That's the, that's the first place where you get the proposal. And then for a very long time, it's merely theoretical. And then Babbage in the Victorian age built these huge machines out of like uh, cylinders of metal and uh, riveting. And, you know, and, and there's a, there's a whole genre of science fiction, which alternative history, if he had actually been able to build one of these fully and it would be sort of steam powered and it was programmable. That would, so it's the first sort of thing there. Wait, can we pause on that for a second? I, this is fascinating. Is this okay. sort of like literally like a steampunk kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. The difference engine that Gibson wrote was based on an actual proposal that Babbage made to make a machine, literally make a machine called the difference engine. Yes, very much. And okay, so like what was the actual mechanism? Like, I mean, obviously this is all analog. So, I mean, how is it? What, what's the general principle? The general principle is you try to represent logical relationships between how these various cylinders could gate into each other and interface with each other. You know what, like what gears are and how they gate in and out. And you can switch gears like the way you switch gears on a bicycle. And by switching the gearing, you can switch you can switch the gating, and then you can program different things into these things. It was quite brilliant, by the way. And as far as anybody can tell, it would have worked. It would have worked. Now, it would have wouldn't been it wouldn't be like the kind of thing that you're we're running this on, like running Zoom on. It would have been maybe the power of a calculator at most. But you, see, this is what people don't understand about the power here. Your app on your phone, not not a calculating machine. Your app on your phone that is acting as a calculator has more computational power than NASA had for all of the Apollo missions. That's how far we've come with the power that's now available to us. So the the first mis- machine is basically proposed by Babbage but it's it's um it's basically in the second world war with Turing um and the machine that he uh created and we uh, hopefully people have seen the imitation game uh starring Benedict Cumberbatch who stars in everything and because that gives a pretty good uh rendition of what was going on there. And then after Turing then it starts to take off and then there was various generations about whether or not we were computers in the classical sense. This is called first-generation cogsci, whether or not we're more like neural networks. And I won't get into this unless you want me to. Um, and then there's a third generation that says, no, our embodiment, our, our actual biological embodiment is central to us being uh, cognitive. That actually informs some of what goes into mentoring the machines, the book that Sean and I are, the books that Sean and I are writing. And so there's a history of the idea, and then once you get sort of touring until the 80s, it's basically the idea that artificial intelligence will be standard computation. And then afterwards, the cognitive science sort of branches into three competing streams as to what artificial general intelligence will look like. I hope that was, was, that, that was accessible. Yeah, no, that was actually very concise. Thank you. Sean, do you have anything to... Add. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I would just add that um, 
sort of the the ghost in the machine would be, in my estimation, John von Neumann and his oh, approach. Yes. Yeah. And uh, then you can throw in people like Claude Shannon, who, mm-hmm. and those two guys sort of served as the micro and macro mentors of uh, McCarthy, who was the founder of sort of the Dartmouth Project in uh, that was supposedly going to figure it all out in a summer. Uh, one of those great... Uh, crazy ideas where we say, well, I'm going to lose 20 pounds over the summer. They were going to figure out. <laughs> right. And he was uh, exiled from Stanford. He had to leave uh, sunny Stanford and go to New Hampshire. Yes, exactly. One, one could focus a little bit better uh, in New Hampshire than in California sometimes. Okay. So at this time, what were these guys like hoping would happen? Like what, what was the goal? And were they working within a university system? I mean, some of them were obviously, but like, were they in it for as sort of entrepreneurs or what was the kind of institutional structure they were working under? Most of them were working within a university environment. The gold standard, and I know that Sean and I talk about these other two people later, are Newell and Simon. And what's important for Newell and Simon is they were the first people to really start this project and applying it to problem solving in particular, like really bearing down on intelligence. They were influenced by all these people that Sean has mentioned. Now, why I mention them is because they turn out to be the godfathers of not only ideas in artificial intelligence, but important ideas in psychology and and economics. And they sort of get the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for how foundational their work is. And their work, um, for me, um, was important in disclosing a lot of important things that were not obvious to us when we were trying to make AI and actually prevented those earlier, very hubristic proposals of doing it in the summer from being solved. I, what Newell and Simon, I think, what makes them different for me is they were the first people to get, not completely, but at least deeply, how hard this problem really was, how really hard it was, and why artificial general intelligence is actually like really hard to do. Okay. So John, you're a philosopher, you're a cognitive scientist. I'm not entirely sure how old you are, but I mean, I'm assuming you (laughs) kind of came of age in the eighties and the nineties. And you know, you are, we're probably relative, the three of us are probably relatively of the same vintage. And I guess this is a question for, for both of you. And maybe John, you want to just go first. When did this start to interest you? Like, has the the concept of AI always been sort of integral to your identity, for lack of a better word, as a cognitive scientist? In one sense, yes. Um, in the days before I'm a cognitive scientist, I was deeply impacted, perhaps by, like many people, with 2001 and the portrayal of Hal. <laughs> I was going to get to him, yes. Yeah. And then, and then other uh, science fiction portrayals sort of put it onto my radar. Um, and then after uh, I was into philosophy, when I started getting more and more into philosophy of mind, I realized that there were a lot of philosophers were presupposing a psychology that I thought was questionable. And so I actually went back and did my degree in cog sci. And because I'd already got philosophy degrees, I didn't have to do any philosophy. So I was able to do all the psychology you need to do also for to be a psychology specialist. I'm actually officially a psychologist at a cog sci at the University of Toronto. I, I, I do both. And it was at that place when I pivoted into cog sci from philosophy of mind that I then became intensely interested 
in intelligence and the problem that I think is at the center of intelligence that got revealed by the AI work of people like Newell and Simon. And I talk about this in terms of what are the sort of two meta problems that you have to solve in order to be a good general problem solver. And so that's how it came onto my radar. And for the longest time, my work was carried by a hope that has failed. I was hoping that we could advance the science enough of understanding intelligence. So when the technology emerged, we could properly wed that understanding of intelligence to an understanding of rationality and, dare I say it, wisdom, so that we could use this emerging AI as rationally and perhaps as wisely and virtuously as possible. I was, And that was what I tried to do with my work. I tried to keep all of those things integrated together as I published and taught my students. And a lot of people that were influenced by me took it up. My great fear, my students will tell you this was my great fear, was that somebody would hack into sort of a pantomime of AGI uh, without advancing a deep understanding of uh, real intelligence or let alone having any connections to rationality and wisdom. And I'm afraid to say that, and I think this is what we propose in the book, Sean and I, is that that's what we've actually hit. We've got a thing in which we've developed these machines that have tremendous capacities, but the degree to which they've helped us to understand what intelligence is in a general fashion has been very small. They give us no clue about how to uh, what rationality would look like, let alone wisdom in these machines. And I think that's very problematic for us. That's part of the problem we're in. Okay, yeah, I definitely want to get to that. Sean, you've been described as a philosopher of narrative. How did your interest in this subject arise? I mean, obviously it dovetails perfectly into, you know, the whole concept of narrative and, you know, the idea of applying a kind of, I don't know what you would call it. There's a sort of, you know, epistemology of of story structure and that that's, it's, it's obvious what the connection would be with what we're talking about. But how did you kind of come into this? Were you worried about, the future of AI and and that's why you wanted to kind of do this project or were you just sort of intrinsically wanting to kind of muck around in all this stuff? Well, the origins of my fascination with AI emerged, as you said, my desire to understand narrative. And it began as a means to sort of raise myself in the publishing business. And the idea was, geez, if I can teach people how to do narrative in a way that has a greater probability of success than not, then that would be very good for me, and it would be good for the people who learn the narrative. So I I began as a methodologist, and then as I was diving deeper and deeper into it, I discovered, like, well, what is the origin of these five commandments of storytelling? Where's this stuff come from? And that led me to people like John and the cognitive science and people like Carl Friston and Alicia uh, uh, Uraro, and, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. And so what I discovered was that story is a scale-free theory, which means that any level of analysis you can use to sort of get to the bottom of story at any level. And John's theory is a scale-free theory too. It's a uh, it's a multi-scale, you can use relevance realization at every level of analysis. And so is Friston's free energy theory. Anyway, so uh, when John, John did a podcast uh, where he laid out his arguments about the prospects for artificial intelligence, I watched the podcast and I immediately called him and I said, let's, uh, let's flesh this out into a book. I'm fascinated here 
because I, I happen to think that I might be looking at the same sort of phenomena that you are from a different neck of the woods. And so together, I think that uh, John, it's sort of like that, uh, that Dunker radiation experiment that John always talks about where you, um, you solve a problem by hitting it from different positions with very intense laser focus. And so that was the idea of this project was that John would serve as the uh, sort of the, the person overseeing the mission and making sure that we were uh, in tune with the, the scientific advances that we know to date. And then I would, I would do my best to make it a story as best as I can. And so artificial intelligence as a general thing for me was I'm just fascinated about how people think, how people tell stories, how they act and what, how they act out those stories and how to change stories such that people act in a, in a way that will serve them better and serve other people better and maybe even serve the universe better. And if we can teach sort of the, the machinery that is enabling people to tell stories, to tell better stories, all the better. So this is a great confluence of a multiple number of my interests. And I get to work with John, who I think is uh, really uh, just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. So I had to jump at this and AGI was sort of like, sure, I'm in. And now that now I'm, I'm completely stricken by these ideas. Okay, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but you know, I'm a writer. I interview a lot of writers on this podcast. I think a lot of the listeners are are interested in reading and writing and, and the literary world. I know you worked in publishing. <laughs> what was that like for you? Were you like trying to uh, apply these techniques with your authors? I, I can imagine that would be a little bit that that's uh, unusual to find in a in a editor's office. What was it like working in publishing? Well, it was it was met with. It was a translation process, right? So I would have to translate my methodology in a way that my publisher would understand so that they would enable me to acquire the projects that I wanted to acquire. And I would prom- make promises that I would make the project better. And then I would have to sort of coach almost psychotherapy, uh, like giving psychotherapy in in training the story and to pull it out of, of the... Uh, the writer in such a way that I could use the same language that they were used to. So I didn't talk about science of storytelling. I would talk about, well, I'm just not really sure what you mean here. Let's talk about that and see if we can come up with a better idea. So I wouldn't say things like your turning point in quadrant three is a mess because <laughs> they wouldn't understand what I was talking about. So as you can tell, it, it got to be too much. And my goal states um, generating a narrative theory did not align with the with the corporate uh, imperatives of my employers, and I found myself getting less and less excited about going to work every day in that environment because it really wasn't about coming up with narrative theories that helped writers become better writers. It was more about finding the right tomatoes that we could throw against the wall and see if they stuck. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and again, I don't want to get too far down this, but. Did you find that this technique worked more with like genre kind of stuff? I mean, I know you did a lot of crime fiction and, you know, sort of procedurals. Is this as applicable to a more literary kind of narrative? 
It's a scale-free theory, which means that any story has to abide by certain patterns of intelligibility in order for it to be recognizable by an audience. So I've identified universal patterns of recognition. It doesn't mean it's a formula. It's just the right patterning of signals so that people can understand the message. And what I've found that the biggest problem writers have is that they don't really know what they're trying to say. Or they don't know what order to say it in. I always feel like they have a I mean, I teach writing, so we often talk about, like, what is this about versus what is the story? And they don't always realize that those are two separate things. Yeah, absolutely. They'll say, like, well, this is a theme. They'll tell you what the theme is. Well, this is about how I realized such and such. But then that's that's not actually, like, the story of the book, even if it's a memoir. But, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I can imagine that would be you. You would have been an unusual figure in the in the office. So, okay, <laughs> I well, an unusual figure. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about how scared we should be by all of this. Do you want to sort of like break down the the various categories of um, of peril that we might find ourselves in, John? So, I mean, one of the things. Well, first of all, I want to say Sean is being modest. Uh, but Sean is also a, a brilliant person. Uh, we got to know each other before we started mentoring the machines because I was looking for, so- I've turning Awakening into the Meaning Crisis into a book, and I was looking for a publisher. And um, Sean said something to me that struck me to the core. He said, I'm not going to make your book a best seller. I'm going to make it a permanent seller. And I said, that's the guy. That's the guy. And then he came to me. He was all excited about after I did the video essay, the podcast essay on AI. And he said, I, I, we need to put this into an accessible format. And I was really worried. And this is not because I had any doubts about his competence. I was already convinced of that. But I was really worried that this couldn't be done without dumbing it down. And But Sean said, well, give me a chance. And he went away and he wrote the first chapter, the first, well, the first book, actually. And he came back and he gave me the manuscript and he did it. And I mean, that's a simple sentence for something that I, w- I, I properly did not expect. He managed to make it accessible without making it dumbed down. And I was, and then I was, I was all in. So I just wanted to, I mean, he was singing my praises. I, I did. I just wanted to make people to know uh, he is a proper partner in this because he's doing something that is really, really needed. Now, to your question about one of the things that we do is we don't make any predictions. One of the predictions I made, even though that sounds like I just I contradicted myself, I predicted that most of the predictions wouldn't come true because people are doing what's called a univariate measure. They're taking they're they're measuring a very complex phenomenon. It's like I'm going to tell you the tides by just taking the temperature of the weather of uh, the water. I'm just going to measure one thing and then I'll put it on a graph and look at this graph. And within six months, we're going to have machines that are capable of blah blah. And I like said. That's bad science. Uh, we don't know what this graph looks like. So we try not to make cold predictions like that because we think those are usually made and they fall into two extreme camps. There are the people who are super optimistic that AI utopia is just around the corner uh, and we're almost there and it'll just be a matter of weeks or months, maybe a year, and we'll be walking as gods upon the earth. And then there's the doomers that are basically, uh, no, 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 it's, we're weeks or months away from complete extinction of the human race. And 
I think both of those extremes, Sean agrees with me, obviously, that both of these extremes are bad science. And in fact, they're not science, they're pretense of science. So instead, what we talk about are thresholds, certain decision points we will face and how we decide those will put us into different pathways of risk and opportunity. I'm sorry, that might sound pedantic, but it's very, that's a very sort of subtle but important point. We're trying to say we're going to hit. So let me, let me, instead of talking abstractly, let me give you a concrete example about this. Right now, we have these machines, and these machines are, I'll, I'll put this in scare quotes, although nobody can see me doing it, intelligent. Like we can come back and ask, are they really intelligent in a minute? Let's just say they at least can do a lot that our, our previous machines couldn't. But what we know from decades of work on human and animal intelligence, especially human intelligence, is that intelligence is only weakly predictive of rationality, where rationality is your ability to detect and correct for self-deception and to care about correcting for self-deception and getting more aligned with what's real, what's true, what's good and beautiful, as the ancient Greeks might put it. Now, our, the, the current machines don't have that ability. They do not have that ability at all. Um, and that's because they went into this theoretical framework of basically hacking their way into a pantomiming of intelligence. Now, at some point, we will face a threshold decision. Do we want to make these machines genuinely self-correcting, genuinely capable of rationality so they stop hallucinating and confabulating and lying and whatever? And in one sense, they're not doing any of this because here's the thing. They don't care about any of these results. They deeply do not care about these results. We do, but they don't. Okay, who's they? Sorry, I'm going to stop you for a second. When we say these machines, what are we talking about exactly? And who is they? Well, we're t I'm talking about the machines, and I'm talking about things like the LLMs, like, and what people are most familiar with right now are, you know, uh, ChatGPT4, for example, right? And maybe the more s sort of superpowered one that they've got a, uh, a beta uh, a testing on. Claude? Um, is that Claude? <laughs> I, I, Have you heard I, of Claude? Okay. No, well, I mean, Hal's, I, Hal's yeah. distant cousin. It's like yeah. Burger okay. King to McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and so, we will have to decide, and we and when we get to this decision point, we can decide, no, we won't give these machines the capacity for self-correction. We'll let them be irrational, confabulating, and not caring about the truth. We'll just make them super-powered. We'll just keep ramping up the power. Well, that's a, an incredible danger because, right, making really, really powerful intelligence that's not rational and does not care about to true, the good and beautiful. Very dangerous. Okay, so the obvious answer is, well, what we'll do is we'll give them rationality, we'll make them self-correcting, and we'll make them really care about their own processing. That's very dangerous too, because that means they have the capacity to become genuine agents and replace us in, in certain ways. Now, when this threshold, but here's the, the, the in-between point. This threshold is not 40 years down the road, it's about 10, 15 years down the road max, where we will, and maybe sooner, it's not, it's not going to happen within the next two years, but right, we will come to a point where we have to decide, are we going to make these machines rational? We're going to set them on the path towards rationality, or are we are going to just leave them the way they are and just make them more powerful? Either way we go, we face risk. And what we're trying to do in the book, right, is get people to understand what these thresholds are and what both but choices, what both choices, if we go this way or that way, each carries significant risk. And 
we will we are then saying if you choose this way this is what you face if we choose this way this is what you face and then we're trying to give people um, the best advice for how we can solve the problem that will emerge if we go down these go through these thresholds which is what's called the alignment problem how do we get these machines to operate such that they will be aligned with human flourishing and i'll just say one more thing and then i'll let sean talk or you ask a question let's just go back to that concrete thing if i just make a super powerful intelligence with that's not ra- rational right and not wise and i start putting it in charge of things we face the fact that it's not going to be aligned with our concern for what's true good and beautiful you could face what's called like the paperclip problem it could just start solving a problem we give it in some powerful way like we give a machine make as many paperclips as you can and it destroys the entire planet to turn the planet into paperclips this is a bit of a joke but it's to make a point right oh well so what we'll do is we'll make these machines as self-corrective and uh, but then when we do, they become autonomous, and then they become like Hal in two thousand and one, and we face that problem. That's what we're trying to get people to see the threshold issue. Okay, and we should say that the the book is in four parts. These are four separate short books. The part four is called Alignment. So there's part one, orientation; part two, origins; part three, thresholds. And I I want you to explain a little bit more about what that means. And part four is is alignment. But yeah, Sean, go ahead. You can pick up on yes. That. Let let me let me address the question about thresholds because that's that's the project I'm I'm presently engaged in, and it's a this is going to be a, a bit of a longer part of the project. And to John's credit, when I finished um, Origins, I sent it to John and he had some corrections and we made the corrections. And, and John <laughs> just innocently said, have you thought about the frame problem, Sean? <laughs> now, the frame problem is, uh, it's, it's sort of a joke, but it's not a joke. Uh, the frame problem is about it has sort of two two channels. One of the frame problems is about the governor function of these sort of chat GPTs. And that, that was sort of generally solved in the 70s and 80s as having a, a, a particular goal state that is embedded within a particular algorithmic thing. So you, you that's how software works right you tell the software i want this as my output and if you don't create this you have to keep doing it until it's it's ready so that's one way to sort of solve a frame problem is you program it into the software machine but the other frame problem and that that is what sort of we were talking about in well defined problem space so if you want software that will tell you how to get from Albuquerque to uh, New Mexico, uh, you can give them the governor function of this is, the, I want to go from there to there in the shortest amount of time, and it can run the algorithm. So the frame problem in that case can be sort of programmed into the machine. But the, the larger problem of the frame problem is where do we get our ability to frame problems in the first place? Exactly. So that is a, a sticky wicket because it's a philosophical as well as a scientific problem. And it's, and it's also a spiritual problem. It's, it's nothing less than sort of understanding how does consciousness emerge as a means to frame the world as a problem space. So thresholds, as John was saying, we need to understand what the thresholds of 
the difference between not caring and caring are, and then intentionally caring. So there are sort of three levels of consciousness in the abstract in, in the way I, I'm framing this. Sorry for the pun. So you've got unconscious processes that can be super intelligent, as John was describing, right? So you don't need your consciousness to make a cup of coffee anymore, right? It's sort of an automatic process and it becomes a habit. And so that's intelligent behavior that's relatively unconscious. You're not going, where are the coffee beans, right? Uh, or driving a car. Like when you first start driving a car, you've got to really be conscious. And then the better you get at it, the more it, it recedes into your unconscious. And you don't really care about the car as you're driving it. So caring, uncaring is generally intelligent, can be intelligent, but it doesn't need consciousness to operate. And we operate a lot of stuff without consciousness. So that brings up the question, what is consciousness for? Oh boy, well, that is to care. So caring is, is a, a process by which you discover what's relevant and what's not relevant. It's a relevance realization process. So you care about, I care about something that you might not care about. It's because I care about it. So consciousness is a frame that begins sort of with an awakening. We wake up in the morning, oh, universal consciousness sort of comes online. And then two other levels kind of pop in eventually. The second level is, how do I feel about being awake? How's my valence? And then lastly, you get a lot of aspectualization and association and, and what we would call, what John calls adjectival qualia to your experience. So you get these three frames that sort of come online. So these are thresholds, right, of phenomena that emerge as feeling that come from not feeling when you're sleeping. You're sort of, for lack of a better word, unconscious. And then there's, there's other levels above that um, that are other thresholds. So what John and I are doing is, is outlining these different levels of thresholds of unconsciousness, consciousness, and meta-consciousness. And, and then once we have that sort of put forward and people can generally, and this is based upon a lot of scientific, because we're not doing a sort of a philosophical treatise on what if this were the case, we're trying to ground this in scientific, and we have a lot of work that's been done to frame this in the proper way. So the threshold part of the, the project is laying out these moments of sort of light bulbs going up on, um, on like a, a table or a stair, staircase such that how can we evaluate what AI is if we don't know what level of stairs actually exists for ideas of consciousness and sentience and cognition. Right. And what about the moral component here? Because you're using the word care. I mean, obviously that can mean a lot of things, but on some level it means caring about what is right versus what is wrong, caring about what is good for somebody else versus something that is completely, you know, uh, done for selfish reasons. 
I don't really know what my question is, but like, how do you even factor that in? Well, you, but that's the point. I mean, so you right as soon as you get, I mean, you're different from computers is they don't care about the information that they're processing. You do. I just want you to pause for a moment and realize how astonishing that is. Uh, because it's masked by the fact that your brain, your body brain is doing it so well. Think about, really just open your mind for a moment. Think about everything you could be paying attention to right now, just in your room, just in your memory. Think about all the possibilities you could be considering. That was the first half of my conversation with John Verveke and Sean Coyne. To hear the rest, go to megandom.substack.com and become a paying subscriber. If you are a paying subscriber and you're hearing this, you need to fix your settings so that your RSS feed will go automatically into your podcast app thingy. You know what I'm saying. We have very clear instructions, including a video on the Substack about how to do that. So if you are a paying subscriber, you can go fix that and you can hear the whole thing. In the meantime, I will tell you that John Verbeke is a professor at the University of Toronto in the Departments of Psychology, Cognitive Science, and Buddhist Psychology. He is the author and presenter of the YouTube series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, after Socrates, and he's the host of Voices with Verbeke. Sean Coyne is a writer, editor, and the founder of StoryGrid Methodology. These two have collaborated on Mentoring the Machines, a four-part book series about the future of artificial intelligence and what human intelligence can do to put it on a positive path. That's my summation anyway. I I think that's pretty accurate. Go to mentoringthemachines.com to find out more. What else? On February 29th, you can come see me in Austin, Texas, talking about writing and stuff like that. It's part of the Moon Tower Versus series at Moon Tower Minion. You can go to moontowerminion.org to find out about that. It's at 6.30 in Austin, somewhere in Austin. I know where it is. I don't want to give too much information out, though. You can go find out about it on February 29th. I mean, and what else are you going to do on February 29th? That day is like a, like a freebie. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you then.